Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson, and I am joined today by Sam Brock. Sam studied medieval literature at Miami University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also been a part-time scholar, not to mention a lifelong fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's work. Sam is currently the host of Quinya Questions in Quarantine, a podcast in which he and his co-host Raleigh take a journey through the messy, brilliant world of the Silmarillion, the expansive epic that goes deep into the history and mythology of Middle-earth. Sam, you are my first guest. Thank you. Welcome aboard. Uh, thank you so much, Graham. I'm honored <laughs> to be the first guest. I'm uh, excited to be here. What uh, really piqued my interest, honestly, about the show is as a big fan of Tolkien and somebody who's, yes, we're reading the Silmarillion, probably the most chaotic or uh, even uh, anarchistic of uh, <laughs> Tolkien's works, but the one he probably loved the best. Um, Tolkien himself, at least in my mind, you know, anarchy or anarchism would not be what would <laughs> pop up. You know, you think of a picture of J.R. Tolkien, the professor in his tweed coat in Oxford. He's leaning against a tree. He's smoking his pipe and he's sort of muddled in the library looking at different languages and texts to build his mythology from. Uh, and as a, a personal, you know, complete novice to the topic of, of especially everyday anarchism, you know, my picture is much more the the black hooded figure with the Molotov cocktail, <laughs> burn it all down, be the Joker in the Batman series. Um, so to listen to your episode the other day about J.R.R. Tolkien, the the anarchist, I thought, well, hold on here. Let's like, let, you know, and but I listened to to the episode and I thought, okay, there are some elements here that I think were a little under the surface that really were Tolkien trying to, you know, discuss his times and place in the world and um, throw some anarchism in his work. So you certainly um, got me interested and hooked and I'm excited to, I'm always excited to chat Tolkien, but I think also to, to learn from somebody who knows a lot more about this topic than uh, I do. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming aboard. This is just thrilling for me. So the first thing I'll say, I guess, is that um, I do want to distinguish between <laughs> the, I mean, I think it's clear if you listen to the first episode, the, the Molotov cocktail, the black block, that version of anarchist and the everyday anarchism and the bold claim I am making, which I haven't um, spoken to any of the black block people yet. Hopefully one of them will agree to come on my podcast. I would, I would love to talk to them anonymously, probably. Um, is that yeah, make sure I'm not there <laughs> <laughs> is that the idea is, you know, one of my professors from undergrad who I sent the podcast to said that really he described the podcast as about the spirit of anarchism and the spirit mm. of anarchism, I would say, or everyday anarchism is what David Graeber calls human decency. So Graeber's example is, um, well, I mean, so you went to grad school at UNC, so the buses at UNC are free. So that's sort of the communist part. And, but when the bus shows up, everyone just sort of waits. And then everyone gets on and they file on in this orderly line. And it's almost always polite and friendly. Yeah. There's no boss there. There's no one making them be polite and friendly. This is just humans naturally in most circumstances behave decently to other 
humans. And so then the, the like sort of capital A anarchist argument is you need to destroy the government so humans can behave in this natural, friendly, communitarian way. The everyday anarchist argument is, in fact, most things that work, like the buses at Chapel Hill work just because people are being decent and no one is messing with them. And we can imagine if there was some sort of scuffle on a Chapel Hill bus and the government came down and was like, all right, now we've got rules and we're going to have someone there in a vest that's official that's going to make sure everyone gets on. Actually, you would get chaos. People would start shoving and someone would take a swing at the authority figure, right? And you would end up with what I'm calling anarchy of this war of all against all. But when people are left alone, they're basically decent. And so political anarchism says you can throw away the government and this decency will fix everything. And it seems to me that that's probably true, but it would take a long time. But in the meantime, I want to find all the ways that like basic decency is the thing that makes giant systems work or little systems work. And we wouldn't call this anarchism. But it, it is. You mentioned one in a previous episode. You talked about libraries, and I thought that that was very touching. As you know, uh, a fan of libraries myself, um, and is perhaps the modern ideal of that politeness um, that that you were describing. And I, when I heard you talk about libraries, I did think, well, that's certainly a page that Tolkien could get on, on you know, would like to read. He could get on board the library train um, as sort of a an example of just sort of, as you said, common decency. And I think common decency is a term that in The Lord of the Rings, for example, is the the key to success, right? What are are the hobbits if not common decent people they're not smart they're not even <laughs> regular height um they're not um you know warriors they're not wizards they're just guys who like to farm and they love their home and they like to read probably maybe from the shire library um <laughs> And so that, and Tolkien himself was sort of that person, right? But it is interesting to think, as you said, when people hear anarchism or anarchy, they have an image, which is the one I had, right, of the the capital A, burn it all down. And um, it, it's just a, a sort of a, a shift for, in my thinking, and I think an interesting one to think of the hobbits, as you mentioned in your Tolkien episode, the agents of anarchy in a certain way despite their sort of um conservative and otherwise very sort of peaceful and calm demeanor so yeah absolutely and i I didn't talk about the hobbits much in the podcast i want to talk about them before we go any further i do need to say what got me on this thread was that tolkien wrote i quoted it in a letter to his son actually it's a letter to christopher where he says you know i believe in anarchy not people with long beards being angry, but the philosophical position. Although then later in the letter, he praises blowing up factories. So he clearly had some of that destructive... You cannot imagine... I cannot imagine Tolkien blowing up a factory, but he did at least in private celebrate the black block version of anarchy. And that made me think, either this letter was... Either this letter doesn't fit in with the rest of Tolkien... Or I am missing something. 
when yeah. I read the Lord of the Rings. And so I went back to the Lord of the Rings and, you know, I'm not sure anyone's buying it, but I was like, oh, wow, it, it is here. It is here. Well, I wonder for Tolkien, certainly, you know, expressing that sort of feeling through his writing is, you know, kind of the author's trade in a way. And so not just in this letter to his son, would he, you know, maybe blow off some steam, but also express an actual political thought, but also then in things, for instance, you mentioned the, um, in the two towers, right? He gets to, uh, basically take, have the trees destroy Isengard, which is sort of like the tear down the factory in a very physical way, right? They, these giant walking trees pick up stones and tear down the wall. They break the dam and flood the whole thing. It's almost like his, uh, a Tolkien, uh, what do they call that? Dream enactment, right? Like I don't, I'm not going to do this in real life, but man, is it fun to like think about that ideal? And maybe that is something that people should, and everybody loves that, right? Like go Ents, please do this, right? We're so supportive of that. So, so the Ents are are eco terrorists. I hadn't put it this way before, but the Ents are are eco- quite literally, literally, <laughs> literally. They are the, the they are the lifeblood of the world, rising up and tearing down the factories. And so, if you read the Two Towers, as I really think you can, as a, as a as a story about eco terrorism, wow. Then you're then you're then you're in a world of anarchism, right? And and they even have these sort of. Um... You know, in that reading, Mary and Pippin are the sort of rabble-rousing, um, you know, stand up on the pulpit with the pamphlet tears and, and shouting for it all because it's the, of course, the Ents are also nothing if not extremely conservative in their mindset, right? They're the, like, you know, it takes them a day to say good morning to each <laughs> other is sort of the joke. And they, you know, in Treebeard, the head events is about the the oldest living being in all of Middle Earth. And so getting that species to the point of becoming these terrorists, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> and attacking Isengard, um, it, it takes some doing. And Marion Pippin, uh, the hobbits, maybe with their sort of everyday anarchism, kind of nudge them in that direction. There's a a quote that I won't have exactly, but it, it, it's also in the Lord of the Rings film. Gandalf says that Merry and Pippin coming to the, the forest is like the uh, the small stones that start an avalanche in the mountains, right? Something that I imagine um, anarchism would be keen on, right? Kind of get moving towards this place where we aren't and trying to, to get somewhere quite different, um, but perhaps step by step rather than by burning it all all down yeah so to get a little bit in the history of the of the capital a anarchism is the sort of like uh the idea behind like anarchism really is created as a break with with marxism because marx is like the the people have their you know are being exploited and their world is being destroyed and they don't understand that and we've got to make them understand it and we want them to be able to, to, to lead the revolution, but they're not ready right now. So we're just going to have to lead the revolution to a certain extent. This is very controversial with Marxism, but let's say, at least from an anarchist perspective, that's how Marx and Lenin reads. Whereas the anarchists say, no, you've got to convince the workers and the exploited that they are being exploited 
And then it's their and then it's their job. It's not your job to tell them what to do about it. So you do uh-huh. education, but you don't do leadership. And in that sense, Mary and Pippin are their anarchist organizers, right? They're like, hey, there's something wrong with the world. You are being exploited and destroyed. But Treebeard, who is a member of this community, yeah. assembles a a council it's it's very anarchist isn't it the intmoot is a is a is a is a committee meeting it it really is uh and like most committee meetings takes a long time and it's quite frustrating for those who are actually trying to get anything done but it does uh uh end up with something um quite quite intense at the end so so you're right i think that's really um that that's wild and also i wonder this may be going off off topic a little bit Graham but I'm wondering if there's any more but about he, this connection between um, you know ecological protection um, sustainability sort of like you know industrialization versus nature and anarchism because that's sort of what we're getting at here in Tolkien Tolkien obviously was um, quite keen, you know, he was a will, you know, a hiker and explorer and really cared about the natural areas where he lived and, and had wandered. Um, and so I'm wondering if there's something larger there that he's touching on. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. So, um, still, you know, I've mentioned him many times, this guy, Peter Kropotkin, still the most prominent anarchist writer he started off, well, he started off life as a prince. He was born as a Russian prince, but eventually he became an anarchist and so, you know, got put in jail. But before he got put in jail, <laughs> he was an evolutionary biologist. And wow. some of his most important contributions to anarchist theory are explaining that anarchism is is natural. There are no factories. There are no... Bo- we talk about like the queen in a hive... But the queen isn't a queen. The queen is just someone who lays eggs. And the hive is made up a bunch of, of a bunch of equal individuals who all work equally. And Kropotkin says, look at what the natural world can do. And we're always saying, oh, we need, you know, these unnatural things, aka factories. But we don't need things like that to build beautiful stuff the other person who springs to mind is this guy william morris i don't know if you're familiar with william morris he's a he's a wallpaper designer um but uh in the late 19th century he was most famous as a anarcho-socialist radical who also happened to make beautiful wallpaper and now if you go to the houses (laughs) of the wealthy i would say half the time they have william morris wallpaper which boy would william morris if he could come back he would he would tear down that wallpaper (laughs) off those wealthy people's houses and he was convinced that the natural world should be the model for human actions and mm. anarchism was natural and that things like factories were going to destroy both humanity in the sort of like classic Marxist way. Like if you are put in a factory, you just become a machine, but also the natural world. So eco anarchism has been at least since the late 19th century, maybe the heart of anarchism. That's really interesting, and also um, it's an interesting thing to, to balance against. I mean, as we your example of the you know orderly use of the public bus or the library or something like that, I would think that some in the environmental community today, I'm talking in a 21st century perspective, 
they feel, and this, I, I guess I, I think they would feel that part of the environmental problems we have today is, yes, industrialization and using our resources, but also a lack of accountability. And by that, I mean sort of regulation and control, right? The the classic uh, tragedy of the commons, right? Like we're, we're using up all the forests because anybody who wants can go cut down the forests and because everybody wants to cut down more forests for their own use, nobody's thinking about what the forest is gonna look like down the line when somebody else has to use it. And the way to solve that for some would be, okay, well, we need to own the forest. We need to say, you can have this much, you can have this much, we're gonna replant this much. It leads to the sort of administrative bu bureaucratic world that is very anathema to <laughs> anarchism right and i think those forces are um very interesting i mean obviously the perfect solution would be everybody being a good enough neighbor that they could figure out how to solve that right but that's also at least in my mind a little um a little like a utopia and, and less pragmatic maybe today yeah I, I mean to go back to where sort of where we started this i would say yeah that is a that is a utopian dream and so my goal in my personal life and also in this podcast is to move us move us toward that dream. So you're not going to see sure. me you're not going to see me bombing the national parks and screaming freedom to the people, anarchy. All right. <laughs> but if the national parks, if each one of us was invested a little more in the national parks, it would be a lot better than you know just having whoever Trump has appointed to be in charge of stewarding our national parks. And something I didn't know until recently, I'm working on an episode is. Rachel Carson, who is in some ways the founder of the modern environmentalism movement, she was really against federal bureaucracy. And she said, if you leave this up to the government, the government is just going to sell it to the loggers and pollute it. And it's it's your job to get out there and and save it. So there's a real powerful you know, oh, bureaucratic, regulatory, environmental model. But there's also a very powerful, starting with Rachel Carson at least, or we can go back to Kropotkin and Tolkien if we want to, of this, like, it's your, it's your job to save the forest. The government's not going to save the forest. Eventually the government's yeah. going to cut the forest down and build something with it. That's what governments do. I think um, that's really interesting. I think your your point about, yeah, if we each had a little stake in... Um, a little more stake in things other than like, you know, paying our taxes or whatever in those places of natural beauty or in, um, you know, th that that would be better, right? And that we would perhaps steward things better. Of course, it's a little more difficult when the things you're talking about are like CO2 levels, <laughs> um, <laughs> for example, or like, you know, plastic in the ocean. It's a... Um, Part of the difficulty, I think, with environmentalism, or a challenge that environmentalists have to deal with is the, you know, I've never seen a polar bear in the wild, right? And, but to, I have, there's value, polar bears have value to me. I care about polar bears, but it's making that personal connection responsibility in a way that it's hard for me to help the polar bears, right? releasing less co2 emissions is one way and this is perhaps a poor a, uh off-key example but that just making that personal connection with things is really important and i think you're right and even doing it one time right 
if you've never been to a national park in the U.S., like, go to one. They're awesome. And I, every time I've gone to one, I leave there thinking, this is so worthwhile and I'm so happy I went and just feel like I do feel more responsible and connected to it that way. Um, so I hope people get that there. And that coming back to Tolkien, because I know I've taken this on this whole environmental tangent, but this was sort of Tolkien's thing as well, right? That he, as a young man, you know, hiked across Europe and um, was a painter himself and would draw these landscapes, right? Like he painted Rivendell in the valley and he painted the misty mountains with the big snow caps. And that was his way of connecting us to it. And I think the Ents as creatures, right? I'm going to make the trees talk, right? So that we, so that the hobbits and, you know, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, everybody can have this, you know, can talk to them. What would the trees say? They would right? say is factories it, are bad. Like that's, right. like that's yeah. when he says, it, if the trees could talk, what would they say? Destroy industrial civilization. <laughs> That's certainly the their main move in the in the story, um, which is uh, wild. And then to stand guard so that it can't be rebuilt, yes. sort of is their thing. That's so cool. actually, let's talk about the Shire, because. Oh, yes. it, it, so I'm I'm going to give you my pitch for the Shire as anarchism, and you can tell me what you think. Okay, um, sure. I it's hard to imagine. I I think there's like descriptions of like mayors or something at some point, but. I don't think we really see government in 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 the Shire. So Max Weber's definition of the state is uh, the one I, I I use. It's a standard political science definition, which is a you know a, a, a conglomeration, an entity that has ownership of violence over a certain territory. So in a state, you cannot do violence unless the state has given you permission, either because you're a police officer or because it's self-defense or something like that. And if you do unapproved violence, then the state is allowed to do violence against you. That's what the state is. We do not see anything like that in the Shire. Do we? There is no idea that um, when... I, what, the Tooks, when 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 Bilbo's cousins are are trying to take first the house from him and then the house from Frodo, that there yeah, is the, a sense, the Saxville Baggins, the, the, yes, the sort Bagginses. of the hated cousins of the sort of the the um, the villains of the Shire in a very low key sort of way. The Saxville Bagginses <laughs> who try and buy Bilbo's house, they <laughs> steal his spoons when they think he's gone, and they never give them back. It's a wonderful family rivalry. But yeah, they don't get like arrested. <laughs> There's absolutely <laughs> no sense that Bilbo can go downtown, fill out some forms, and send the sheriff to the Saxville Baggins' house to, re- to remove those spoons. There is no sense of that kind of apparatus of state power. That's, um, I think, a good, a good point. Uh, I have... Just a couple of things popped to my mind from the story. A couple um, about early in the story, and then actually something at the end that I think is very anarchistic that I think you'll you'll uh, like. There is a mayor in the Shire. He doesn't make a big appearance at the end of the story. Sam, you know, becomes the mayor and serves like a bunch <laughs> of terms or whatever, right? But it seems to be mostly a mayor in a very like small town rural historical sense of kind of like he's the one there for the weddings and who like organizes the festivals not a lot of um 
you know, work being done in that regard. There is a, and this is a sort of a tangential reference, but there is a pseudo police force in, in the Shire. And the only time I can think they come up, though, though I may be wrong, is at the beginning of the story, the ring wraiths are trying to find Frodo in the ring, right? And um, these are the scary guys with capes on who make loud <laughs> shrieks, and they work for Sauron, the bad guy, and they're going to come kind of like kill the hobbits and take the ring. And the hobbits don't know what's going on. They don't really know even like other than Frodo that the, a ring exists. And they're fleeing from house to house. And at a certain point, a hobbit runs and call, like sounds the alarm, basically, in the Shire. And ri- it mentions riders coming to kind of make the, the black riders run away. But that's about as, um, as militant as, as they get. The Shire was roused and the people would come help. Right, but so it the, doesn't... the, the people would come help. That's the crucial thing, right? Who is coming? Not not the government, not a bureaucracy, but members of the community who have been designated or perhaps have self-designated. Yeah, to... maybe a uh, more of a, uh, what do they call that? The city watch or yeah. the street street watch where they walk the neighborhood. At yes, night, exactly. Sort of and thing. you can do that without a boss, without a hierarchy, without violence, without centralized power, I would I would say. And it's certainly, well, and, and in the story, of course, the ringwraiths are some of the, like, you know, villainiest, um, most evil and powerful bad guys in the story. And so the fact that they're even chased off by that, you know, <laughs> the Hobbit, you know, <laughs> crew is pretty impressive. Um, there's also the point to jump, that's at the very beginning of the story, to the very end of The Lord of the Rings. Yes, that's that's where I wanted to go, because when you mentioned they're standing watch over Isengard to make sure it doesn't happen again, and it does happen again, but not in Isengard. Yes, and so this is for folks who, um, maybe you've seen The Lord of the Rings movies, but you haven't read the book, for example. This is something that does not happen in the, in the film, because the film has enough endings as it, as it is. <laughs> um and I love every single one of them, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the story in the book, Saruman and Wormtongue and their bag of cronies have come and they have, while everybody else was paying attention to Sauron and Mordor, snuck into the Shire and have taken over, basically. They have come with their axes, they're cu- they cut down the party tree, um, and they throw the mayor in jail. And they set up shop basically with Saruman and basically as mayor of the Shire. And the hobbits come back, the hobbits being Frodo and Sam and Mary Pippin, who are now these like, all right, we've been through some stuff. Like, we're not, <laughs> this is our home and we just defeated Sauron. We're not like putting up with this. And they do what I think you you would agree is a very anarchistic way to deal with this problem is the exact rally the townsfolk right they find weapons and they hand them out and they go up to the big men who have taken over town and basically kick them out because they're not um they're not living up to the shire community standards yes. i guess so. <laughs> no i would i would totally say and they don't say they don't say the king Saruman is dead. Long live King Frodo. They're just like, right. okay, there's no government again, and that's exactly the way we like it. And let's go back to arguing about spoons and and farming and having parties. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I think in the story, you know, one thing it it shows to 
just underline the transformation of, you know, I guess our hero hobbits, if we'll put it that way, the Frodo, Sam, Miriam, Pippin, but also to, I think it hints for me in a nice way that the other hobbits could have done those same things too, right? Like, it's not that Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin are super hobbits or special in a certain way. It's just when their home is at stake, when their way of life is challenged, they can be quite feisty in a way that you wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't expect. And so I think that, that I, yeah, I would yield to you that this sort of point about the Shire being a very... You know, if it's not a no government place, but it's a smallest of small government as you could be, sort of thing. And it's you know, in that same letter to his son, um, Tolkien rails against the idea of the state. So there maybe is some government, but there is no state. There isn't a line drawn around the Shire, which someone is in in charge of. They all sort of collectively like the fact that there is a line around the Shire, but they don't, they let people leave and they let people come in. You know, there's no, when you enter a state, someone stops you and says, show me your permission to be in the Shire. Yes. Although that does, just to complicate things further, there is a sort of hidden um, (laughs) security apparatus around the Shire. (laughs) And of course, that the hobbits are completely unaware of, right? And this is, of course, that that Aragorn and the other rangers are supposedly, as soon as Gandalf thinks, oh, wait, this might be the Ring of Power, which is many years before Frodo sets out on his quest, he tells the rangers, hey, can you look out for the hobbits? And so that is very glossed over. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but I'm sort of picturing they were, you know, preventing the ruffians who get there at the end of the story from getting in, sort of protecting the the land in a in a in a way that's hard to quantify, but it does I think complicate this sort of no state apparatus at least for that time period so around the event. So here's what I would say in response is there it, there's no state apparatus. But there are armed men protecting the Shire, and they are doing it in a way that I want to be clear is a complete fantasy. Like that you can put together this army of rangers who are just all friendly and nice, and they stop all of the bad people, and they let all of the good people through, and they never violate anyone's human rights or do any waterboarding or anything because they're so good. This is... This is an utter fantasy, I think. And this is the, like, escape. So you mentioned in an, in an email that the Shire is sort of England. And I think that's right. And I think it's a fantasy version of England. And I think it's a very specifically an anarchist fantasy version of England. But, yeah. a, but a conservative one where England is sort of for the English. And that's that's just okay. And some king who is not actually a king because he's just more like a superhero, Aragorn is going to take care of everything and they don't have to dirty their their hands. Although I do think that's undercut at the end. As you say, when they when they throw out Saruman and then they're just like, all right, light the pipes. Yes, um, that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think you're right. And I would, obviously the idea of just like, it, it, I mean, it's probably the main 
not the main, but a major point in anarchism, right? It's just like as soon as you put any group of people in charge, they will abuse that power. And you talked about in your episode already about how that is obviously a central to the Lord of the Rings, how it's what the ring is, right? What is Sauron's goal? All of that is bad. Um, but yeah, it does sort of apply here in microcosm that like, oh, we never even see the rangers. They just take, you know, they don't even, they honestly, none of the hobbits even know they are there protecting the Shire is uh, perhaps a bit uh, far-fetched in, in, a, in a modern sense, but it works in the story okay for me. Yeah, it does. But it's because we have accepted, I mean, this is, this is the way in which, you know, this is a, this is a conservative fantasy in which you can have something that sort of resembles an army but only ever does good things and never <laughs> right and never takes any power for itself which that is i believe has never happened in the history of armies as far as i know yes um and yeah that's true well the so the just because we mentioned aragorn the uh, i I really wanted to talk about, now we've kind of covered the very beginning and end of the Shire here, um, but about the return of the king, right? Which just the title itself, I pictured some anarchists um, shaking a fist at. <laughs> um, but Aragorn is awesome, right? Like he is by all, all counts, uh, uh, the you know, a hero in a much more traditional sense than the hobbits are. And his whole journey is to become the absolute ruler of his land. <laughs> the right? unconstitutional he, monarch. Yes, to just be the, you know, the top dog of, of all top dogs in a way that he, even though the place he rules Gondor is really far away, he can still protect the people all the way in the Shire, for example. <laughs> um, it's a very, you know, he... he, he, he he would be the one that they, that they would be throwing the Molotov cocktails at um, <laughs> it, it, in, in a certain version of this tale. And so I would love your thoughts about how, how Aragorn is different or how he maybe plays the role of monarch in a way that is less the state oppressing people, um, taking away freedoms and not letting kind of collective goodwill run things. Yeah, so I have so, I have so many thoughts about this because this is really the challenge, right? The first thing I want to say, something that I had kind of forgotten until I listened to your last episode of Quinya Questions in Quarantine, is that this great King Aragorn, like his final action in the War of the Ring is just to lose. It's just to mar march up to like <laughs> the world's biggest fortress with an army that is nowhere near big enough. Yeah. And then Frodo and also... Gollum save him. So the first thing I want to point out is he may be this great and wondrous king and much more a conventional hero than Frodo, and he saves the day with the the ghosts. I'm sorry, you're the Tolkien expert. I don't remember the name of the yeah, ghosts. Um, that's fine. They're the ghosts. They're yeah. the army of the dead. The it's army of the dead, aka the ghosts. <laughs> the ghost crew. Show up the ghost crew. <laughs> yeah. But then Aragorn's final act is to lose. Is to lose big time and he yeah. is not the hero right frodo, frodo is the hero so that's the first thing to say my second thought is that this is a fantasy as, as a work but also aragorn is a fantasy as a person yeah if tolkien wrote a sequel let's put it this way sam can you imagine a sequel in which we have scenes of aragorn ruling 
I can imagine a sequel in which Aragorn goes out and does adventures. But can you imagine Tolkien... Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Game of Thrones, but the sort oh, yeah. of like... Can you imagine Tolkien sitting at a council and having You're a right. bureaucrat take out a book saying, Sire, we need to raise tax revenues? Because I can't yeah. imagine Tolkien writing that. Can you? No. And in fact, he Tolkien did write a little more of the Aragorn story that, that didn't make it in the final book, but it's about him coming to visit the Shire. <laughs> Um, he like rides with his retinue and they go and say hi to the, the hobbits back in the Shire. It's like a many years in the future sort of thing. So it's sort of exactly what you're saying. He's like, you know, getting the heck out of the council chamber to go back and see his old friends. Um, I take your point, And I think that that is, I think George R. R. Martin, the, the author of the, you know, the song and ice and fire, the game of Thrones universe, that's the exact thing that he loves and, and likes to point out the difference between him and Tolkien is that he would love to know Aragorn's tax policy and think about how that would cause strife in the realms and the backstabbing and blah, blah, blah. Whereas Tolkien is, um, far more interested in the, the history and the language and the cultures than the. Yeah, the politics and the um, administrative sort of things, which, to his credit, uh, George R. R. Martin makes way more interesting than you would think um, that exact sort of topic. I would I would go farther than that, though, Sam. I would say that it is not a coincidence that it wasn't that Tolkien like wasn't interested in Aragorn's tax policy. Yeah, it's that Tolkien thinks if Aragorn has a tax policy he is no longer a hero. And that mm. is why we never see a tax policy from Aragorn. Yeah. Because tax policies and bureaucracy and administration, stewards and viziers, yeah. can't be heroes. Yes, it's true. And certainly the... Um, you mentioned your episode how it's Denethor, the steward, who is much more the... You know, like an actual ruler, to yeah. be honest, in, in a sense... Um, I think Denethor in the book, as compared to the movie, has a little more, he's less like sort of obviously a, a bad dude in the book. Like he has some better things going for him. He's a little more tragic in that sense. But he is clearly not the right person to lead the country, right? The right person is Aragorn. Aragorn is the um, sort of warrior poet rather than the king or administrator in any sense and so i think you're right and maybe we we get to leave aragorn in his nice place of kingship because we don't have to think about it too closely yeah tolkien doesn't want us to look at he doesn't want us to look at that because he has created a world in which uh, not not a world where bureaucracy and coercion don't exist but in which no one that we would ever think of as good uses bureaucracy and coercion. Actually, I wanted to put this to you, and you can just take a second to run this through your head. I was thinking of all of the people who, like, hold power, who are good. Elrond, Galadriel, Gandalf, mm -hmm. Aragorn. Do any of these people give an order in the entire series, do they ever come? I mean, Gandalf says, fly, you fools. Like, that's the closest <laughs> I can think of to an, an, an order. Yeah. I would have to, you know, in terms of a, you know, a huge directive, 
They don't pop to mind. I would have to go through the text. I mean, I'm sure Aragorn yells at the hobbits to do <laughs> such and such, right? At a certain point, right? Like he is their leader and their guide. We're going to stay at Weathertop. We're going to, you know, Rivendell. Um, it's all for, obviously, for their benefit and done out of goodwill. But he can be the um, commander. And also, of course, he does eventually take charge of the army of Gondor. And he very, very much so gives orders to. Um, the army of the dead, right? They go through the passage. You will follow <laughs> this guy. <laughs> um, but, and, and Gandalf can be bossy in a certain way. Although <laughs> if you really dive into the backstory as we, as the Silmarillion does, and we do in our podcast about the wizards writ large, there is a very anarchistic piece about the wizards that is exactly to your point about giving orders. The wizards in the Tolkien, you know, legends are gods, right? Demigods. They can be hugely scary and powerful. Think of like the Balrog, for example, down in the mines of Moria. That Balrog is the same sort of being that Gandalf is, who's standing there across from on the bridge. But the Balrog looks like a giant fire monster, and Gandalf looks like an old man. <laughs> And the reason that Gandalf has to look like an old man is that the higher gods, the Valar, who are really like the people running things in the world, have sent the wizards to help the peoples of Middle-earth, but have forbidden them from ruling the peoples of Middle-earth. They say, you can give counsel, you can provide wisdom, and you can try and thwart Sauron, but we're not going to watch you take over places you can't be so sort of like making sure that they don't the wizards don't become the thing they're there to fight right you can't beat sauron and then become sauron and this is what's at stake of course when frodo offers gandalf the ring and he says don't tempt me you know <laughs> like because he is forbidden from doing that and that's why he's an old man because an old man it can't just like run up to the balrog and stab it he has to be crafty about it. He has to use wisdom and counsel in a very, in what I, I think is a more uh, everyday anarchistic sort of way of dealing with problems. Um, and so to your point about whether he gives orders or not, it's like he gives a great advice. And when people don't follow his advice, it's almost universally the wrong call in the story. But no, he, he can't... Um, he can't unilaterally command even beings that are so much sort of lesser on the scale of creation, right? Like he can't tell the hobbits what to do. And he, I think, hates that and loves that at the same time because he's like, I'm a god and I'm telling you to do this. And, you, and Pippin's just like, you know, knocking things down a well and bringing all the orcs <laughs> down on them. Um, so I think that's a great observation. And then obviously Elrond and Gladriel, two of the most powerful elves in the world, rule kingdoms, but rule perhaps in air quotes, right? Yeah. They are rulers just by nature of their um, genealogy. But again, you don't, there's not a lot of that Game of Thrones level of like them ordering people to do such and such um, things. So I think it's a it's a fair point, and and obviously very different to Saruman who tries to kind of assume that command that he is forbidden, like Gandalf or Sauron, obviously, or any of the other villains, right? Wormtongue who tries to kind of subvert and take over. He's the vizier incarnate, right? <laughs> yeah, and the vizier um, is always bad in Tolkien. Always yes. bad. Yes. 
and um, he tries to kind of take control from from within in in quite an interesting way um, from from Theoden. Although I would say Theoden does, you know, Theoden gives commands. They're not always the right commands, right? <laughs> like, should we go to war? No, let's go to Helm's Deep. Um, <laughs> But he is, but he's a, so perhaps an interesting case that I don't know if we have enough time to think about all the way today, but he is a, you know, much more so the prototypical ruler. He does have people who are following his commands, even when he's being um, manipulated and is giving clearly the wrong advice, people are still doing it. Could be Tolkien showing how that can be problematic, right? Like, don't be listening to this ruler when he's giving you the telling you things that are obviously yes, not. Remember, so I think you're right. I when I was thinking this through, I missed Theoden as someone who is a king and actual does actually does king stuff, which Aragorn ba- <laughs> barely does, but is also a good guy. But I also think you've already pointed out some key ways that like. He's. I'm he's, trying to help you out. Well, no, no, I think I, you know. Look, um, so in addition to the way that like Wormtongue, like the vizier, is running is running the country for him, and then yeah. the other thing is, you know, I said like treason is the hero of this moment when. Um, mm. Oh gosh, which one is is it? Pippin that uh, saves Faramir. Yes, and then Mary, and uh, Eowyn, mm. are are heroes. Uh, on the field in front of Gondor and they have been commanded by Theoden not Not to go not to go so even though he's a good king betraying him is the right thing to do if it's if it's the right thing to do and it doesn't matter that he's the king I think that is perhaps a a strong theme in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit the Tolkien universe that the right thing to do is the right thing to do Right. And luckily, you know, maybe this is a criticism of Tolkien. Usually those choices are pretty obvious, you know, for the reader. It's not as things are fairly black and white, right? Like there is good, there is evil. And what is needed is the strength to choose good, which is not how all stories are are told. And it's not how real life works, really, most of the time. But that... um, and that choice, though, of good or evil is regardless of the power structure around you or what other people are telling you to do or are doing. Um, Theoden, as one more point of this, um, right, doing what needs to be done, the right thing, there, he rides to Gondor, right, after dallying about it for a bit he decides in actually a, a very follow a king's order sort of way rohan has this uh, allegiance to gondor that goes back hundreds of years in in the backstory and they have to come help right gondor is under attack rohan has to come help because there's this oath between the two peoples and in that case that is definitely the right thing to do so following the kind of contract as as he put it in episode for these oaths is right but i think in another circumstance he might not do it right if it wasn't the right thing to do it's hard to speculate about how that all plays yeah i think that makes sense i i I certainly i mean i think that kind of like um feudal bond and allegiance is is actually a moderately realistic moment in this um yeah 
but it also makes sense that I could certainly imagine if if someone did not owe that bond of allegiance, it is still the right thing to do to yes. ride and save Gondor. Um, hold on, let me check how long we've been talking. Oh, we've been going for almost uh, 50 minutes, so we should probably wrap up fairly soon. I guess I just wanted to throw... I wanted to make sure I got one more idea out there that just sure. kind of in the back of my mind but popped up as we were talking and then, you know, see what you think and then see what else you want to say. But I, I'm really struck when you said, like, the the story is the story of choosing the right thing to do. And it's it's obvious, at least to the reader. It's always obvious to the reader what the right thing to do is. Yeah. But the right thing to do, it seems to me, is never to allow um, your morals to be corrupted by power. It is not to defeat evil and you use any power necessary to defeat evil. In this novel, power is evil. They are synonymous. So Saruman is doing the right thing if the goal is to destroy Sauron. There is a chance that he will get his hands on the ring and he will destroy Sauron. But the villain of the of the Lord of the Rings is not Sauron. It is power itself. What do you, what do you think? I think that's a really interesting way to to think about it. And I think that the as we've discussed many, many of the you know, the most villainous characters in the story are the most power-hungry, right? Um, and what makes a character like Gollum, for instance, who we haven't talked about, so compelling is that Gollum does not want power <laughs> in the way that Saruman and Sauron do, right? He just is a... He's like a drug addict, yeah. right, for the ring. And he does very evil at things right to get that ring including murder and we still feel for him or i feel for him yeah. in a way that i do not for worm tongue or uh saruman for example and i wonder if that is a piece of it what you are suggesting that it's the um it's the sort of self-empowerment drive going to 10 that is um, so, so difficult. I think Boromir might, if, if we had another hour, would be another um, <laughs> character study of that exact thing, right? Boromir does want power, right? He wants the ring so that Gondor can be all it can be and can defeat Sauron. But we know that that's also bad news for the same way that Saruman getting with the ring would be bad news. Because once you have that power, you're, it's, it's done for. Or if Gandalf used the ring, for example, or Galadriel, as right. you discussed in your episode about it. Um, the, the, ring, the ring is clearly, you know, it is power unleashed. And using it in that way, whether for good in air quotes or evil in air quotes is bad, yeah. right? It's it's all bad, no air quotes. Um, and so I think that you have picked up on a, a, a real theme, theme here that I, you know, you've convinced me I would buy it <laughs> um, that for what that small bit is worth, but that 
the the story of the Lord of the Rings is the everyday person making the right choices even at personal cost in order to ensure a safety and security for other common people right that's the goal there's no the the story of aragorn and becoming the king is almost ancillary to that heart right and the reason i think that people love the hobbit and lord of the rings right is because of the hobbits right if you're reading the story and it was just the fellowship with Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Gandalf and Boromir, it wouldn't be the and Aragorn becomes king, blah blah blah. It would not be the sort of beloved tale that we I am lucky enough to get to talk about <laughs> with you today, right? It's that um, anarchistic, communal, self you know home preserving. A neighborly community of hobbits thrown into a world that's not like that um and yet and they are the ones succeeding who win. yes exactly and that they win <laughs> yes that that is i i love that you know like i get into it so i and i think other people pick up on that as well so, so I, I was talking to my wife about this i think this is in some ways the central appeal of of the Lord of the Rings, at least maybe it's the central appeal for me. And I ha couldn't have articulated it until I had this terminology. And thank you, Tolkien, for using the word anarchy. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it wasn't a secret, at least. I mean, he used the word, right? Yeah. But um, there's so much. One of my students, I was talking about this, said, like, I think you're right about it being anarchism, but it's shrouded in so much monarchical conservatism that it's hard to see the anarchism underneath but i sam i love the way you put it in terms of the communal mutual aid loving hobbits go out into the world and somehow they not the wizards monsters and kings are the winners and they because pull they it off they don't even want to win they just want everyone to be nice um and yeah absolutely and as you said right aragorn like a chess game has to be the sort of sacrificial queen piece in order for the hobbits to do their job. Um, so, and that's how they win, right? In the Silmarillion, um, just to make one final plug for that book, which I love and is lesser read than The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings for obvious reasons. It's denser, it's more complicated. Talk about anarchy, try and remember all the names of these elves <laughs> in the Silmarillion. But that story also has at its heart um, this theme of the, you know, little people in this case, metaphorically rather than statutorily, um, doing the right thing when all of sort of the apparatus of war and, um, you know, summoning the armies, when that fails, it's about the little guy who has to find the way. And I think that that is comes out in the Silmarillion in a really nice way in the same way it does in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Eric Hobsbawm calls them uncommon people, right? They are common people, but there's nothing <laughs> but there's nothing common yes. ab about them in that sense. I do want to take a moment, since I think we're wrapping up, to plug, again, Sam's, podcasts, uh, Sam's podcast, Quinya Questions in Quarantine, because I, I do recommend the book The Silmarillion if you are a fan of of Tolkien. I mean, if you've only seen the movies and not read the books, read the other books first. But the Silmarillion is so dense. It is a work of fictional history 
and mythology yeah. mixed together. It is rewarding. It is deeply rewarding. It is thrilling sometimes. It is tedious at other times, and it can be super confusing. Sam, Will, and what is it about? About 40 episodes, something like that? Wait, it's, yeah, 30, 30 episodes, and, and um, you're absolutely right about the story. That, that was beautiful. But we call it, frankly, the messy, uh, brilliant narrative of Tolkien. But, but basically, the show um, is my friend Raleigh, who's a Tolkien fan but had never read The Silmarillion. He loves the movies was like, hey, I want to read this book, and I've read it a bunch of times, and so we go through it chapter by chapter, him for the first time, and me for the manyth, and we break down what's going on and what's worth remembering, because honestly, it's one of those books where it's like, some of these names you don't have to remember, others are very important, and we also try and connect it to both the Lord of the Rings movies and books frequently. So I appreciate that that plug, Graham, and if you're searching for it, it's it, just start with Quenya, Q-U-E-N-Y-A, and I guarantee you it will be the first one that pops up on whatever feed you're looking <laughs> the for. First Quenya. The first Quenya. The first Quenya. So give it a chance. If, if you're interested in otherwise, uh, Graham, I will be tuning in to uh, anarchism to try and really improve my knowledge of this political field. I think I'm a, a little bit like Tolkien only in the sense that I don't dive into these things maybe as much as I should, and so it's been a learning experience for me through your four episodes so far, and I'm eager to learn more. So thanks so much for having me, and um, good good luck. And uh, once again, thanks so much for starting with Tolkien. I think every podcast should start with Tolkien, <laughs> but I, I I love that um, you, you've done it without it. You know what a gift to to me and other Tolkien fans. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Sam. So what is, what's the line from Tolkien? Is it, uh, go forth with a good heart, Sam. I need, I need to start signing off with that. Go forth with good hearts and, and thank you again. The same to you. Thanks so much.